All right, well, welcome to Genesis 8. There are probably a lot of ways that we could preach or teach this chapter, but I'm going to go in one specific direction today. And if you feel like I'm shortchanging the passage, I can kind of understand that, but what I'm doing is I think I'm being faithful to the author's intent. I think I'm being faithful to the text. I think I'm being faithful to the context. And I'm being faithful to what God has put on my heart and in my mind for today. And that's kind of all I can do. So I want to draw your attention to what happens when God remembers. But I also want to talk a little bit about the implications of God remembering and forgetting implications for who we are and for what we do. So before we begin, I, I should also uh, say that some of the things that I experienced this week really moved me in a way that relates to our passage and what I see in it. And I know there are people who can take experiences like that and uh, feel strong emotions and turn it into an engaging story and a quiet buildup and then a dramatic crescendo. And uh, I'm, I'm not that guy. Uh, that's not really me. And I'm more likely to ugly cry while preaching than do any of those other things. So I'm drawing attention to the possibility that I could do that so that you won't be distracted if it happens, so I won't feel like I have to apologize if it happens, and so that if it happens, Laura can uh, put a little timer, countdown to Mike ugly crying in the corner or something. Anyway, uh, before we go back into the passage that Tim read, let me just pray. And God, I ask that you would be in your word as it's read, as it's taught, as it's heard, and as it's applied. And I pray that you would, in each of us, be ready with the next step that you have intended for us to go. You do that by your power, and we will follow your lead. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so uh, so far your takeaway could be, it's okay to ugly cry. All right, today's sermon continues our In the Beginning Jesus series, and today's sermon is titled God's Righteous Remembering and Merciful Forgetting. And while we're using ellipses, the big idea in our first verse is, but God remembers. So, Let's take a look at Genesis 8.1, and I say, but God, and then I've got to stop already. The, we're turning the magnification on to look at just verse 1, and even then we're dialing in even further. But God, we keep talking about this, don't we? This phrase that shows up from time to time in Scripture, how it signifies a difference in history, in people that God makes in his power, and in his goodness. And it's no different here. What is this but God bringing? What is this particular one bringing? It goes from 150 days sitting in a wooden box, basically floating on water on a flooded earth, to the beginning of this chapter. So the end of Genesis 7 in 724 to it bridges into 8.1. Let's see what the next phrase is. Uh, 
God remembered. God remembered. This hardly seems noteworthy, does it? I mean, if God is supreme, if God is all-knowing, if God is who we say he is, then it goes without saying, doesn't it, that he remembered. Of course he remembered. How could he forget? But apparently it doesn't go without noticing, uh, without saying, because here it is. The author included it. Why is it here? Because God remembers is a human description for a divine occurrence, for something glorious about God. It falls short of the reality that it describes for sure, but it, it basically means something like this. God activates the next step of his plan. So God remembered, chose him activating the next step in his plan. And what happened? But God remembered Noah. Okay, God moves with someone in mind, but God remembered Noah. Had he forgotten Noah? <laughs> well, big floods are kind of distracting, and there'd been a lot of, lot of things to do, boat instructions, uh, gathering a bunch of animals so that they could make it to Noah, which probably involved literal cat herding. So God had lots going on. Maybe he, no. No, he hadn't forgotten Noah. But 150 days is a long time to sit. It's a long time to wait. When you're in the middle of a global crisis, am I right, church? Okay, 150 days in 2020 got us from mid-March to mid-August, roughly. And we're well past that, and most of us are pretty done, right? It's been a while. It's been hard. And the way I read this is... God for Noah's sake, but God for Noah's sake. God remembers people. He does things for the, the sake of people. People matter to God, and his plan relates to people. But the sentence continues, and so should we. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. God didn't just remember Noah. Noah wasn't the only one who was an integral part of God's plan. Noah wasn't the only participant in God's next supernatural action. Noah wasn't the only one worthy of God's care and God's consideration. The domesticated animals and the wild animals alike were on his mind and part of his plan as well. So when I'm about to walk out of my front door in the morning, I, I look out and I see the red-headed male house finches sitting on and around the bird feeder that I've got out there, and I see them looking at me, trying to decide whether I'm a threat. And every day so far, they guess wrong and they fly away. They fly away from the bird feeder that my family got me because they know I like birds. They fly away from the seed that I put regularly in the bird feeder because I like birds. Uh, I, I, these birds just don't have any idea what I'm up to. They fly away as I walk through the door and greet them with a, hey, finches! They don't know my plan, though. They don't know my intent. They don't know me. They don't know that I remember them, that I'm intentional about them, that I mean actually the best I can for them. It's not wrong for them to fly away, though, because they don't know me from Adam. 
and I keep filling up the feeder even though they give me no credit for that, right? What does God do when he remembers this family of humans and these families of animals? But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. This is the first use of the word remember in the book of Genesis. God has never before revealed that he can do this, that he does do this. Why does God remember? I used to manage IT service desks. So you as our internal customer let us know what kind of problem that you're having with your computing resources. We gather necessary information. We do troubleshooting. Uh, we find a solution if we can. We escalate somewhere if needed. And we often had things like flow charts, things like decision tree diagrams. Uh, we had lists of people in specialized areas of information technology that we could bring problems to that were outside the scope of what we were doing. We could guess the kinds of problems that might arise just based on experience. Passwords were going to be an issue from time to time, or a new operating system on a phone or on a laptop was going to cause some kind of conflict with some security system or some software. We would know these things from experience or by anticipation or by seeing patterns in problems. But God doesn't need any flowcharts or decision trees or outside resources. He already knows exactly what's going to happen what the failure mode involved is going to be. Why would he remember? I needed the analysts at my service desk to remember all the troubleshooting steps and all the pieces of information that need to be gathered. God doesn't need any of that. So I think the answer to the question is this. In God's story, this is the moment when his concern for Noah, as well as the cattle and the beasts, is highlighted again. It's coming into spotlight focus. All this has been going on, storms and flooding and chaos on the earth. And the last chapter's picture is suspended in time for a moment. The waters on the earth are frozen in mid-surge like that, that Japanese uh, drawing of a wave. And this flooding boxes contents are highlighted. Okay, the flooding box, the ark, with the people and the animals in it, that's what's highlighted. Spotlight onto this little ark, this big ark. God remembers because God is about to do something really remarkable. He's about to do something that could never have been done otherwise. What is it? The remarkable thing is that God systematically undoes the reboot of the earth that he just initiated. So days and days and days and days and days and days and days ago, he started this whole process, and now he's going to begin to undo it. And rather than read through all the description of, of those elements, which line up with what happened on the way building the disaster, what I want to do is just highlight the sections in Genesis 8 to through 19. So in Genesis 8, 2 through 5, the water sources stop. The water levels drop, okay? I, I had a plumber out on campus for the last three weeks, it felt like, and uh, every time that we had to test the gas system, he had to go out to all the endpoints, all the furnaces and heaters and this and that, and 
cap it off and make sure that it was sealed off and check for leaks. And in order to get things back into operation, he had to go back around and undo each one. God doesn't have to undo each one. He just makes it happen. He opened them, and now he shuts them. Pretty cool. Okay, Genesis 8, 6 through 12. The ark comes to rest, and the birds are sent out, and eventually they find dry land. And I love the fact that the doves are willing to come to Noah's hand, and he brings them in, and they're happy to be there until it's time for them to leave the ark permanently. Finches, I hope you're listening. All right, Genesis 8, 13 through 14. Noah unseals the ark, and the ground dries out. Genesis 8, 15 through 19, this, this last section of the undoing, God sends the people and the animals out, not just to depart the ark, but out of the holding state that they've been in and back into fulfilling what he had called them to do in the first place. And I, I said last week in Genesis 7 that God wasn't warning about a natural disaster that was coming. He was planning a supernatural disaster, warning about it, and bringing it into effect. And here he undoes it. Here he completely undoes it. All right. God can just make things happen. God's plan moves people out of a holding pattern and into fulfilling his will for them. And a lot of people feel like they've been in a holding pattern for 13 months now. Perhaps things aren't returning I don't know, maybe they are returning more to normal in your life uh, than in some other people's lives. But whether you, you're just uh, resuming things the way they were before or whether you've got a new normal that's been established over the, the last little while, you have some questions you can ask yourself. What is God's will for you and how will you know? Well, how did Noah know? <laughs> well, he had it easy, right? God told him. Okay, well, how will God tell you then? Uh, if you spend regular time in God's Word, you will begin to learn to hear His voice. If you have trusted people helping explain it to you, you will learn to understand what He's saying. You will learn what the internal voices that you have in your own head, which ones are saying the opposite of what God says, and you'll begin to be able to distinguish his voice. And you'll learn what he likes and what he doesn't like. You'll learn how to follow him without having explicit instructions every day because you're going to be rooted in his word, which not only talks about what he likes and doesn't like, but what he himself is like. But God isn't described as explicitly telling Noah what he does next. I think it's interesting. So in Genesis 8, 20 and 21, we're going to focus in again. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. Okay, so what's Noah's response to God's remembering? He makes a sacrifice to God and first thing off the ark uh, in verse 20, animals are dying again. What's up with that? God explains in verse 21, and goodness gracious, I'm not going to curse the ground again because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. Well, there's some bad news, but wait, wasn't that the whole problem to begin with? Isn't that how we ended up in this whole circumstance 
in the beginning, in the first place, and now it's still a problem the moment the people and animals step off the ark? What's different? Is this going to be a pervasive problem? And apparently it is. But what, 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 what's happening? God smells the aroma of the sacrifice and he finds it pleasing. And unlike pagan gods, this is not God saying, I'm hungry, I want food. That doesn't happen in this flood account. This isn't also like when I spend too much time out at the grill and uh, my hair and my clothes begin to smell like uh, hardwood smoke, okay? I like that. God doesn't need that. He made me capable, and I hope he made you capable, of enjoying barbecue. But he himself doesn't need barbecue, okay? What is it about the offering, then, that's pleasing to God? It's an acknowledgement that Noah, even though he's rescued, is still sinful. Noah knows this. And that it's an acknowledgement that God, even though he's a righteous judge, is merciful. Noah isn't like my house finches. He knows who God is. And he knows that God is powerful and that God is just, a little too just for most of us. But he responds to God's goodness. Noah remembers God. He highlights him. Verse 21 says, God said in his heart, I like this, God doesn't literally say this out loud, right? It's like in a thought bubble. But it's a thought bubble that's still bringing sun and leaves and clouds and rain, according to verse 22. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. I think God moved the writer of Genesis to tell us what he was thinking so that we would know God, so that we would know he was thinking of you and he was thinking of me. He was thinking of people who often don't live up to our own standards, let alone God's perfect standard. And Robert Alter, who's a, a Hebrew scholar, says the silent promise in God's interior monologue invokes no external signs, only the seamless cycle of the seasons that will continue as long as the earth. God is dependable, even more dependable than the seasons, which is good given that we barely experience them here in Santa Clara. But let's go back to what I said about God remembering. It shows him activating the next step in his plan. And if that's God activating the next step in his plan, we can't really duplicate that, right? We can't remember and activate God's next step. We don't remember and make God's next step happen. You and I aren't God. We can't accomplish that. But look at what Noah has done by building the altar and making a sacrifice. He has remembered God. He has resumed worship of God, which had practically died off on the earth before the flood, right? He's played a part in the next step of God's plan by being God's person. Worshiping God was the next thing he was meant to do. And you and I can play a part in the next step of God's plan by remembering. What does God want us to remember? What does he want you specifically to remember? Would you just be open to the possibility that he wants you to care about people and be available for them when necessary? Okay, and 
I mentioned before, I had a weird week. It was very busy on a facilities front and very difficult on a sermon prep front. And so I was supposed to record it earlier in the week. That didn't happen because of the, the schedule that I was on. And so, okay, there's still a few things in our gas system that need to be addressed, though gas is onto the campus again. Thank you, God, and thank you, Taylor from the plumbing company, and thank you, Daryl from the gas company, both of whom brought an amazing attitude uh, and were out here a lot more than they should have had to have been. So I commend Taylor and Daryl, and I commend them to their employers. I commend them to you as well. All right. I wasn't able to finish the sermon when it was supposed to be ready. So there was nothing to record. And so I came in, and I'm, I'm doing some, some work on the sermon, and I was struck by the name of a person. I was preoccupied by the name of a person I hadn't thought about in a while. Somebody I used to do ministry with, we don't live in the same area anymore, and haven't, haven't seen them in, in probably a year. At any rate, I remembered his name. I remembered his name, and I couldn't put it down. It kept, so I didn't know why, don't know anything about what's going on with him, so I just started praying for him. I didn't know what to pray for him because I don't know what's going on. But I'm, I'm praying, and uh, after a while that didn't feel like enough. Oh, Mike, you're going on feelings. Well, I, I didn't have anything else. I had no data. I had no, no cloud writing telling me what to do. So I wrote an email, and I said, hey, this is probably really silly, but I'm praying for you right now. I'm praying that you would be strong in God's power and equipped to withstand the attacks of God's enemy. And I just felt like the whole thing was pretty weird. But once I had sent that email, I felt like, okay, I can continue on with my work. So I did that. And the next part of my work was reading verse after verse after verse of God remembering and looking at passages where people... Uh, are, are told to remember, or where God himself remembers. But even though it happens a ton, look in Deuteronomy for numerous uh, remember, they don't, is the reality. Uh, or they do, but only really intermittently, only off and on, mostly off, when he brings revival in them, when he brings a leader who actually wants to follow him, uh, when he brings a set of people who are all in and want to figure out what God is up to and be part of it, be faithful, not rebellious. But that's not the norm. It's not the norm in biblical history because our hearts, like theirs, from childhood are still a huge problem. And God's chosen people in Scripture often don't remember him. So the story of the Hebrew Scriptures is of God remembering, God intervening, so that he can preserve his people. God remembered Abraham in Genesis 19, and he brought Lot for Abraham's sake out of the catastrophe that was befalling the cities near where Lot was living. For Abraham's sake, and to draw attention to the goodness of God's plan for Abraham, God took action. He rescued Lot from the supernatural disaster that was being wrought on those cities. God remembered Rachel in Genesis 30. He listened to her cry. He enabled her to conceive. God took action to allow Rachel to give birth 
to a child named Joseph who would save all his brothers from starvation, even though they had previously tried to kill him. God had a plan that included Rachel and included Joseph, but also included all those other brothers who had hated Joseph. Isn't that interesting? God remembers and brings good to a bunch of people by doing specific things, specific steps in his plan at a point in time. Much later, God hears the groaning of Jacob's offspring who are enslaved by the Egyptians in the, the book of Exodus, and he remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, drawing attention by supernatural interference to his divine plan and to their rescue from disaster. It's amazing. And you know what? Every inclination of the human heart is evil still from childhood. And that's the rule in Exodus. God springs them in the most elaborate get-out-of-jail-free card experience ever, and they still rebel repeatedly from him and from his leaders. Do a word search, like I mentioned in Deuteronomy. Do a word search for remember, and just see how many times they're told to do so. And look at the history of the nation and uh, notice how much they forget quickly. And then many, many years later, God sends a prophet, Jeremiah, who explained how in order to remember us, God has to be able to do something that doesn't seem like it should be possible to forget. Here's what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Minds, hearts, that's how it goes, Mike. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will know me from the least of the, them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Remember their sins no more. So because of human wickedness, God promised he would make a way to forget our sins. The, the being with a perfect understanding of all things, a perfect knowledge of every detail is somehow going to be able to forget. We have faulty hearts and minds and so he needs to remake them. But we need something because we rebel. We need him to have a way to let go of our rebellion and not count it against us anymore. But God can't just shrug his shoulders at evil. He shouldn't. But if we have evil baked into us, how can we ever hope to be in real relationship with a perfect, holy, righteous, set-apart God? Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Okay, this is the best possible news. Our evil hearts were far away, and we had to stay there as a result. Our rebellious thoughts were far away. We were totally incompatible with being in God's presence, but God made a way. He remembered you, and he remembered me, and the way is the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus forgetting his kingship, forgetting his priority, 
and remembering us instead. So we were rebels. He was king of all. And he forgot that in order to live among us. And his memory of us lifts up our value to a place it would never have been if we were about our own self-righteousness, after our own intentions. His goodness is able to make us worthy to enter God's presence. But Jesus had to forget his position in order to remember us and include us in his kingdom. The writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 10, 16 through 18, first he quotes Jeremiah, the verses that I read about writing laws in our hearts and laws on our minds, and forgetting our sins and rebellion. Here's what he says in verse 18, the writer, and where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. You and I don't have to leave the church or leave our house and go out and build an altar and sacrifice an animal to God because Jesus has once for all been the sacrifice that was needed. Where our hearts and minds have been set right by responding to Jesus' work, by Jesus' blood, by God's plan, we need nothing more than that. No more altars, no more animals sacrificed. Shalom at last, peace with God and man and creatures on the earth. That is amazingly good news. But for now, our experience of shalom, of this peace with God and peace with each other and peace on the earth, it's really, really incomplete because that's not what we experience in day-to-day life. Okay, and I, so back to sermon prep. I'm, I'm reading about God remembering, and my son starts texting me about his, his cancer class. It's not a science class. It's not a medicine class. It's a class about having hard discussions about cancer. Okay, and he said, yeah, I'm watching a video where a cancer patient is just vomiting a ton. Um, okay, well, talk about a, a vivid picture of the kind of not peace we're living in, Right? And so we started talking about cancer, and I told him about my mother ending up in the ICU during her cancer treatment because the chemo was just so hard on her body that she had a ton of internal bleeding. And so she was in the ICU for quite a while. And ultimately, that resulted in her discontinuing the chemotherapy. And so she was asymptomatic with the cancer because chemo's miserable, and because she had all this internal bleeding, stopped it. And look, the chemo might have saved her, or it might have killed her, because that's the state of our medicine. We have to bomb the village to save it. But we don't live in a world of shalom. Cancer metastasizes. It comes back. The evil in our hearts metastasizes, and it wants to come back. And now, my mom was doing well. She's asymptomatic for cancer. She's well enough to have a joint replaced, and suddenly the cause of chronic pain that she'd experienced for years and years and years is gone, and it was like having mom from many years before back. And we enjoyed this window where that was the case. But then the cancer came back, and the symptoms came back, the suffering came back. And here's the thing. That can all be a bad thing, but I can at the same time appreciate getting to be with her, to have her as herself with us a little bit longer. I really appreciate that because 
We live in a world that just doesn't have that kind of peace. And so I'll take a little window of peace over no window of peace. All right, so we're having this texting conversation and somebody knocks at my window here at the, the church on my office. And so I come down and let them in. And it's a, a friend of COV, doesn't attend here, but does some, some work for us. And I love this guy. He is a great guy. I really appreciate him. I'm in the middle of remembering God. I'm in the middle of texting with Calvin, appreciating how difficult it was to walk through that season with my mom and my family and how much I appreciate what God allowed us to do in that time. And we're talking, this guy and I, about stuff that needs to be done on campus. And then he says, hey, I'm kind of going through some, some hard stuff. The lady's in the, the hospital. I've got to work. My daughter needs somebody to be around. And it's, it's not easy to do all of those things. And we talked about that a little bit. And I can't tell you what a different space I was in because I had been remembering. Because God had allowed me to remember what it was like to be in that situation of suffering for and with my mom and of appreciating the good that was in the middle of that situation while it was there. And so, hey, we, we, he tells me about this, and I get to pray for him. And I'm just going to pause here and pray for us, for God to intervene in his way, in his power, where we need him to intervene. So God, I ask that in the lives of the people who are watching this, that you would be active, that you would remember us, that you would remember the people that we know and care about and can interact with and represent you to. I pray that you will be taking that next step in your plan, activating something going on in us or around us, and allow us to participate, even if it's just by seeing you at work. And I pray that you would do that in your grace and in your power and as part of your perfect plan. Amen. Okay. By being ready to remember people, we get to participate in God's next step. Okay. So we have this conversation. I pray for, for the man. I go back to my office. I sit down to keep working on the sermon. Got to get it done. And I receive a reply to that email that I sent back earlier in the morning. The ministry friend that I had remembered and couldn't, couldn't forget. And he said, actually, Mike, your email makes a lot of sense. And I, I'm about to go uh, do some counseling and I'm hoping that this is going to be the counseling day when this particular besetting problem finally gets laid to rest. It's really caused a lot of problems. Like, wow, that's so cool. Now, did I do that? No. It, it wasn't my idea to think of him. It wasn't my idea to email him. I just couldn't think of anything else to do to get him off my mind so I could continue on with my day, which is not the world's greatest motive, right? I didn't know that he's been in serious counseling. I didn't know his issues. I still don't know his issues. But God supernaturally brought him to my mind and wouldn't let me continue with what I had to do until I had done something with him. Well, what did I do? I reached out in a way that God used to say, hey, ministry friend of Mike's, uh, I've got you. I have got you. Doesn't matter that Mike doesn't know what's going on and he's clue-free. That's pretty normal. 
I, God, know what's going on. And I can even use a guy like Mike to let you know that I'm in control of this. I couldn't forget him. I couldn't forget him, and I got to be a sign that God is doing something supernatural. And look, it's quite possible that that day isn't the day that that stronghold was finally demolished. But whether it was or not, there is evidence that God is at foot. God is on the move. No thanks to Mike. So, God moved me to email a friend. Who? Through my son, he caused me to remember a sweet brief time with my mother near the end of her life. He filled my head with episodes of remembering from his word. He connected me with a friend who's going through a difficult time and allowed me a connection in conversation that we haven't had before. And he told another friend, I've got this. God's got this. And he wants us to play a part, you and me. So, Father, I ask that you would move us, move our hearts, move our minds into your will, move our remembering to who you are and what you have done. Move our motives into serving you by connecting with others. And may your kingdom come one step at a time and your will be done one obedient action at a time by your power, by the work of your Son, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Love you, Church of the Valley.